Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Did you see the trailer for the It remake? I'm pretty sure you have. If you're listening to a horror podcast, I'm going to bet that It is a movie that's up there with The Shining for favorites for you. I saw the trailer and didn't find myself thinking, I'm pretty happy that this is getting remade since the old one isn't that good. So I'm skeptical uh, about this one. But there were a few moments in it that I found pretty cool. The carousel projector scene in the trailer was pretty creepy. I do remember the first time that I saw the original movie, and if you'll indulge me for a moment, I was just old enough to know how to deliver moderately quality lies to adults to get my way. My parents had dropped their kids off with an aunt and an uncle staying on the shore of Lake Erie, and they went off to Jamaica for a week. One evening, I saw that the movie would be on TV, and I explained my intent to watch it, which my uncle immediately put a stop to. Since a kid that was eh, probably 10 or 11 at the time was far too young for that movie, I explained to him simply that my dad and I were going to watch it on TV together, but he had to go to Jamaica, so he said I could watch it on my own. Amazingly, that worked, and I got to stay up two evenings and watch a movie that probably damaged my childhood a bit. Uh, Yes, that's right, two evenings. Back then, with movies that long, they'd split it into two nights. You remember that? I'm not so familiar with how movies are aired on network television as I used to be, but I'm pretty sure that sort of thing wouldn't fly at all anymore. Years later, my dad would take me to a local production of a play comprised of Stephen King's short stories adapted for the stage. The portion of the play for The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon horrified my barely teenage soul, and for literally years, I couldn't sleep with my closet door open or ajar. So, Stephen King, all my life's therapists, drug dealers, and bartenders, thank you. Let's hear from a different Stephen. Stephen A. Carter has written articles, short stories, screenplays, short scripts, and was a feature writer and monthly columnist for a British cinematography magazine. He has recently turned his attention to novels, 20-plus years producing in Hollywood instilled a sense of pacing while teaching him to think visually. Germline Revolution in his debut novel, an adaptation of his screenplay, Germline. With the first draft finished, he is currently in the edit-slash-rewrite phase. He even lives in Oregon, Ohio, with his wife, Sherilla, and their dog, Romeo. As an aside, if you're not sure where Oregon is, it's right across the river from Toledo. I vaguely remembered a friend I had somewhere around my college days 
that lived on Pickle Road in Oregon. I remember the name of the street, but not who lived on it. Strange how the memory works, or sometimes doesn't. Give me your ears as I read you Stephen A. Carter's Dark is the New Light. By the time he stopped running, his lungs were burning and his temples pounding, his chest so constricted it felt as if his ribcage would implode, crushing the life from his body. His heart thudded at a machine-gun rate, and his mouth was filling with a cottony, corroded copper. His feet were shredded, and his face, torso, and legs were crisscrossed, with cuts so numerous he was a solid sheen of red, appearing oily black in the dim moonlight. Even his cock was torn, his scrotum punctured and seeping. Only his eyes had miraculously escaped damage from the thick vegetation through which he blindly pursued freedom. Wide, white-rimmed blue orbs scanned the darkness for an avenue, a path, an opening through which to continue. He was in a small clearing, the first he'd crossed since effecting his escape. He wanted to bend, clutch his knees, and gather his breath, but knew he had no time. He looked up to get to his bearings, dismay washing over him only grayish darknesses above, the stars masked by tropical cloud cover. They would be on him soon if he didn't get moving, but he was well aware that continuing to stumble blindly through the jungle could kill him just as quickly as if he simply sat down and waited for them to find him. This was not the tame, wide-eyed jungles of Tarzan and Indiana Jones. This was the Panamanian jungle, with some of the thickest vegetation in the world, filled with poisonous insects, spiders, snakes, and reptiles, and death could strike from any quarter. He could only pray that one of the big cats had not caught his scent, was not silently stalking him, though death in that manner would be preferable to death from the hell pursuing him. He needed direction. He fought his instinct to run and closed his eyes, tuning his ears to the sounds of the forest, the whoop of the coral frog, the clicks and chirps of crickets and katydids, and the buzz and whirs of flying insects. All their monkeys roared like lions, the scurry of a rodent underbrush, off to his left. He slowed his breathing, his being coming sharply into focus. He was cold, though the temperature hadn't dipped below 75 degrees. Loss of blood was stealing his warmth. He was being feasted on by mosquitoes, bitten by chiggers. He sensed every wound on his body. A jagged tear in his side, a flap of skin the size of a maple leaf lay folded against his hip. He could hear the roar of his blood pulsing through his veins, smell the metallic aroma of his open wounds, and taste the fungal rot of the jungle floor. He was hungry, thirsty, tired, and weak. Though well-trained and in peak condition, his strength had been sapped. He wondered at the fact that he was still on his feet. His neck hurt. No, burned. No, both. A throbbing, burning, searing ache that seeped to his spinal cord and pulsed in his temples, overshadowing all other injuries. Fear had never served him, and panic would never overtake him, but the nagging tickle of concern invaded his thoughts, freezing his bowels. If he'd let it fester, it would consume his mind, milk all his precious time. He blocked it all out to concentrate to listen, to hear. There, to his right, 45 degrees, distant, perhaps two clicks, water, a river, an escape route. He plunged into the jungle toward the source of the sound, slashing his left shoulder on the spines of a black palm. He ignored this newest assault, focusing on the goal. Pain was irrelevant, only serving as a reminder that he was still alive, still one step ahead. He vowed that if he made it out, he would visit his mother, spend time with her, perhaps convince her to join AA. She was a good, smart woman, but she was a drunk, and that made her mean and stupid. Whether she joined the program or not, he needed to see her, needed to tell her that he loved her. It had been too long. He'd look up Christina, too. Maybe she was still single and hadn't popped out a litter of dirt munchers. He could see her lopsided grin, hear her big laugh, and smell her tresemme hair. Maybe they'd get married, have some dirt munchers of their own. They had shared a once-in-a-lifetime love forged in youth and purity, tempered in friendship and forbidden sex. But he had run away like a scared little boy, afraid of commitment and routine and stagnation. He chased adventure as a substitute for substance. Marine Staff Sergeant William Billy Pierce had joined the Marines at 17. He had learned how to fight, how to kill 
how to die, but he had never learned how to live. Now he wanted to live. He wanted to live a dull, normal life with his quirky wife and the lopsided grin and house full of slobbering dirt munchers. He wanted a boring job with a mortgaged ranch-style home and a rusty pickup. He wanted a man cave with a 60-inch television to watch football with his asshole friends. Maybe he'd get a dog, a big stupid dog that ate its own shit and knocked him down every time he came home because it was too dumb to realize he'd only been gone five minutes. Maybe join a club, the Rotary Kiwanis or the Elks, where they held annual fundraisers and had dinner dances where everyone complained about the rubbery chicken and overcooked rosemary potatoes. He wanted all that more than anything. If he made it out alive, he promised himself he would go home, back to the one place he swore he would never see again. But he knew now that nothing else mattered. Life was too short. Shit could go sideways before he could blink. And it had. It had gone sideways so quickly. He had been leading an incursion to ferret out smugglers who were running drugs and guns from Colombia into Panama, destined for the United States. The squad of ten consisted of U.S. Marines and Panamanian security forces. Their mission was to halt the activity at the border, shutting it down permanently, meaning, if necessary, kill everyone involved. Now all of his men were dead, and he had barely escaped with his life. Onward he plunged through the dense jungle. It wasn't fear that drove him, it was survival. Someone had to live, someone had to remember, but first he had to forget. That would be in queries, so he would tell a story about being ambushed by the smugglers. They would believe that. What they wouldn't believe was the truth. No one would. So he would go home and forget. Forget their capture, forget his imprisonment, forget the death and the blood and the screaming and the horror, until he was alone in the middle of the night. Then he would remember and hug his knees and shake and cry because his soul burned with anguish, because death came in so many flavors. Now, there was no time for that. He had no idea what time it was, but it had to be near dawn because he was seeing more clearly, able to avoid running into trees and tripping over roots. He no longer felt the burn of his cuts, but the pain in his neck was reaching crescendo. His temples pounded as if his head would explode, but on he ran. He was getting close. The roar of the river was loud. He redoubled his speed, ducking a branch, leaping a rotten log, avoiding a tree. Then the bottom fell out, one moment running on terra firma, the next he was plunging downward, pinwheeling his arms. He fell forty feet, landing hard, his legs breaking the fall, the fall breaking his legs. The left was a compound fracture, his thigh bone punched through the skin. He waited for the pain to come, waited for death. Three feet from the river's edge. Hoorah. The pain came not from his legs, but from his neck, head, and spine. Pain so severe it contorted his body in a backward arc, pulling his lips into a tight, rictal grimace. Clawing his hands and bowing his feet, he began to spasm, his head pounding the dirt. Whap, 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 whap. Mercifully, he passed out. When he woke, he saw the stars. It was still dark, but he could see as clearly as if it were day. They were standing over him, six tall, white, angular men. No, not men, something else, not human, not any more. Though their lips were still, he could hear their conversation. He has turned. He is meat. No more, he has turned. Then they were gone, disappearing into the shadows like smoky wraiths. He sat up. The pain was gone. No cuts, no headaches, no bones sticking from his thigh. He rose to his feet, fixating on a single idea. He must get home. He must see his mother, then visit Christina. First, he must feed. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. 
BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That was Stephen A. Carter's Dark is the New Light, as read by me. Link to my personal page will be in the show notes, but otherwise, you've already heard enough about me for the evening. Let's hear another story by someone else's voice. Nick Manzilio is a Rhode Island native that finds himself living in Manhattan with his girlfriend. His short fiction has appeared in publications such as Thuglet, Dread State Political Horror Stories, and The New England Horror Writers Presents Wicked Witches. He recently earned an MFA in creative and professional writing from Western Connecticut State University. Listen with me to an original for Tales to Terrify, Nick Manzolilo's A Firm Grip on the Ankle. There are disobedient shadows that the light has trouble banishing. There's something about being in a well-lit public building at night that's unsettling and I can't quite place it. If it's not a bar, then public places in general are only meant for the day, and to look out the front doors of the lobby to see only blackness and distant streetlights gives me a twisted feeling in my gut. In a hotel, there's the idea that you're never quite alone, even when the place is at total vacancy. There are all of those empty rooms full of a silent, dark stillness, that are just waiting to be occupied, waiting to have a purpose. I usually get goosebumps working the night shift at the Shirley, but the goddamn cutest girl I've ever known is working with me, so I don't mind. Hell, I volunteered for tonight, and technically tomorrow mornings, ten to six just to be with her. A hotel in the middle of Warwick, Rhode Island, is a joke. T.F. Green Airport and his two exits away, hosting a stash of cheap hotels and motels that practically encircle the tiny landing strip. Providence, which is what passes for a city in this state, is 20 minutes north, featuring a full selection of hotels just downtown. The Shirley here in Warwick, at best, gets to host all the lost dregs too dumb to realize they can probably afford to stay somewhere else. As it so happens, I've seen a lot of women some definitely transgender, come through here who might just be hookers, too. The owners told both of the alternating managers to let suspected prostitution slide as long as the Johns aren't lining up outside any of the rooms. It's not something I'm supposed to pay attention to. Normally, I only have to run the front desk and manage phone calls for reservations or any requests from the rooms, which usually amounts to complaints about the stench of cigarettes, despite all the rooms being non-smoking, or suspicious stains and leaks. My solution to every problem is to cut 20 bucks off the one-bed, $80 overnight fee, and move the guests to a different room. I don't smile over-eager like concierges are supposed to, but I try to make the guests happy, reasonably. Not having a maid at night sucks, if someone starts puking their guts out, I have to switch their room and remember to tell the morning relief about the mess. There have been a couple times where I've forgotten to mention a puking incident, and the ensuing rotting stink has made the room a permanent undesirable. Not that it doesn't still get rented out anyway. The owner, who I've rarely met, is a shady type who I wouldn't be surprised was a member of some sort of Dixie mob. With it being the night shift... At any moment, all sorts of people are liable to come creeping into the lobby, which is little more than a fancy red carpet embroidered with twisted golden shapes. Knowing to expect the decrepit and the drunk, the man who limps into the lobby is odd enough to get my nervous adrenaline gushing. With bloodshot eyes, uneven stubble, and hair that hasn't been washed in days, the man all but collapses against the counter as he stares at me with trembling lips. If he were cleaned up, he might look 40. But as is, he could be a permanent retiree living in Florida. The top of his T-shirt beneath his faux leather jacket is wet like he's spilled toothpaste all over himself. 
you have rooms? The poor bastard mumbles, as his eyes seem to beg me to say yes. The front door slides open, and a family, a mom and two red-eyed boys, one tall and one short, close in age, walk in with the same kind of erratic, exhausted drive as the man. Children usually never stay here. There's no pool, nothing miraculous with that vacation vibe that makes a place special. There's only a Chuck E. Cheese next to the Warwick Showcase movie theater a couple streets away. The mother puts her arm around her kids and stays behind the man, not looking at me. The reflection in the elevator door across from the front desk is warped. I exchange a quick glance with Steph, who's been sitting in the rolling chair doodling over her mock chemistry final, formerly oblivious to how off this guy is. Now she's giving me the classic, what kind of bullshit do we have to deal with now, look. Are you guys okay? I break my one rule and care about the customer. We've had a long, long night. Past couple nights. The man, the dad, looks over his shoulder and then cracks the weakest smile. We'll be okay now. We're just tired. What, did they hop the Canadian border or something? No worries. That'll be... Well, we only have two queen beds in a room, but I can give you guys a connector, and the doors between the rooms open easily enough. No, one room will be fine. The man glances back over to his wife, and the smallest, youngest boy is crying into her baggy gray Block Island sweatshirt. The mom's makeup is running slightly. Women must hate how makeup can easily give away emotion. Okay, no problem. Almost on autopilot, I take the man's credit card and run it through the system and charge the family $160 for what is hopefully the least dirty room we've got. The Shirley has three floors, and I stick the family on the first, which gets cleaned the most because it's the easiest to reach. Steph plucks one of the keys off the crooked square of the racks that stand behind the front desk. Those racks are like a testament to how cheap this place is. No modern magnetic cards or door locks. I drop the shimmering key into the man's open hand like he's a beggar, and he ushers his family around the corner of the lobby. The taller kid has a series of four sausage-like blisters along the length of his neck. As the family shuffles off to their room and their shadows linger for a couple extra seconds around the bend in the hallway, I realize that they didn't bring any luggage. The mother didn't even have a purse, and the little boy wasn't wearing a jacket, despite it being in the low forties. They smelled like smoke, right? Steph's bumping my arm, and my face is less than a forearm's length away from hers. She's always touchy like this. I can hardly stand it. My reply to her is a long snort from my stuffed-up nostrils, and she giggles politely. You think their house burned down? she asks. Maybe. Isn't there, like, a system for that, though? Like family? Not everyone's got a family. Steph's picking up her cell phone, and I have to force myself not to glance at the screen to see if she's texting any guys. Not my girlfriend, not my business. I gotta keep reminding myself of that. And maybe I'll accept it. Not that I wouldn't mind having a girlfriend. Like, isn't there some standard thing where someone whose home burns down gets put up in a hotel? A nice real hotel, I mean. I'm trying to think of where I've heard of the system, but now that I consider it, I doubt it exists. A Saturday night tragedy. Almost makes tonight seem not so bad, huh? It takes me a second to realize she's talking about working on a Saturday. Oh, wait. You switched with Zack and volunteered for this shit. Steph throws her hands in the air and shakes her head at me. I think she knows I'm into her. Sarcastic people are usually pretty perceptive. She's taken so many Saturday nights off in the past that the scheduling manager has pretty much forbidden her from doing it more than once a month. Well, my roommate's gone and I'm planning something for spring break, so I'm going to save up my skip days and coverage, if you don't mind my scheming. Steph's response was a snort. Where are you going? No idea. It'll be warm, though. I'm thinking North Carolina, which is kind of lame, but it's the only place I can afford to go on account of my cousin going to school there. 
His spring break is a week later, so I'll hang out and party with him college-style right near the beach. Stay away from Mexico. My dad said it's more like Iraq than we think Iraq is. Her dad's a DEA agent, which partially scares the shit out of me. But Steph's a stoner, and because that's a secret to no parent, I'm not that nervous about ever meeting the guy. After I win her over, that is. One of the best parts about working the overnights with Steph is our 420 smoke break, which always gives me a fine buzz that carries over until I clock out and collapse into bed. Yeah, yeah, maybe I like a little bit of danger. I pull up the second, partially broken rolling chair and prop it against the wall to take a seat with the collage of keyhooks dangling over my head like stalactites. I can almost imagine the roar of the packed bars up and down Post Road as the weekend euphoria reaches its all-time Saturday night high. If I'm jealous, it's only because I can't drink here at the desk. Then again, if my roommate Howie wasn't in Vermont, chances are we'd be cooped up playing video games and getting drunk off a cheap, shared 30 rack in our tiny apartment. What are you missing out on tonight? Steph still looking at her phone as she leans against the front desk. Fuck. Oh, cut the negativity. I'm sure you had fun last night, right? Had to babysit. Balls. Well, let's think of a new game. We've played everything from charades to checkers and scrabble. On our phones, of course. And lately, when we're on together at night with the managers only checking up on us every three hours, we've been getting into more personal games usually resulting in asking one another bizarre questions. The sort of get-to-know-one-another games I played the last time I took a girl out on a date before I had to start worrying about paying for the rest of my meager communications degree on my own. Eh, I'd honestly just rather take a nap. Fucking chem, man. She groans and glares at her folder of mock exams she's been flipping through since she got here. I almost want to say, I'm down for a nap. But that might cross the fine, perverted line I plan on keeping myself away from. We could always get stoned early and watch funny shit. The computer we use to schedule reservations is an outdated old Macintosh, but it still has a decent enough resolution that we wouldn't have to be hunched over our phones watching YouTube. Not that I ever minded the close proximity. You know, Cheech, that's not half a... The lights flicker and Steph's immediate scream is enough to make me fall from my chair. As if there's a train passing by, the hotel shakes ever so slightly, and in the darkness I hear the front door slide open, then close. The lights flicker back on, and the lobby is empty. When I get to my feet, Steph's nervousness turns into embarrassment as she starts laughing. Then all of the keys fall from their hooks like Christmas tree ornaments abandoning ship. "'Motherfucker!' I yell louder than I intended to. My voice echoes, and Steph clasps her hands to her face. "'Well, now I've found a way for us to kill twenty minutes. Sorting the keys is gonna suck.' "'We?' Steph grins, and I chuck her a middle finger. "'That was some fucking truck that went by, huh?' she says as I hunch over and begin picking up the older, thicker keys first. I've always thought there was something kind of mystical or spiritual about keys. You can tell these things are old because very few of them look alike, which means every different owner of the Shirley has probably gone to a different locksmith to replace keys lost by customers. I wonder if this place was ever decent. I can hear one of the kids crying, and the walls aren't actually thin, so he must be screaming pretty loud. It sounds like some kind of pathetic, mewing animal that's been caught in a trap. Poor thing. Steph's pouting as the lights begin to dim once more. What in the fuck? I'm leaving if they go out. My thoughts of spiritual keys and my hope of getting one tattooed on my arm one day, if I can ever afford it, are lost. There's definitely a backup generator in the basement that kicks on. Steph says, just as the lights blink off one more time and another truck or something comes shaking by the hotel. Scattered emergency lights flicker on across the lobby and, yep, that would be the emergency generator after all. You totally fucking jinxed it, I muttered. This is the kind of stuff that pisses me off about working somewhere so unprofessional. The streetlights are clearly on just down the road like lonesome torches at the edge of the woods. 
the power is going out is through no fault of anyone other than the mismanagement at Shirley's. Twelve bucks an hour isn't enough to be tortured. Diarrhea comes out all at once, Steph mumbles. It's precisely because she's so unladylike that I admire her. Those lights go out again, and I'm going to need you to hold my hand. I hate the dark. I'm lying, kind of. I don't love the dark. But this may very well be some kind of divine event that will get us closer. I'm not in the friend zone yet. I'm not. I'm not. I'd better not be. Aw, you can hold my hand. But I'm just going to call you Baby Danny from now on, okay? Fuck you. You're not going to take my man card that easily. Oh, yeah? Even in the half-dancing shadows of the lobby, I see a flash of wild energy dart across Steph's face, especially around the silver piercing at the corner of her lip that seems to supercharge every expression she ever makes. Her talk of taking my man card kind of turns me on. Oh, boy. Am I losing my dignity? The door opens from the family's room around the corner from the lobby. Here come the complaints. They aren't the only guests staying here tonight. I think there are three more. I bet they'll all come and try to get a refund because half of their lights aren't working, even though it's after midnight. What do they need lights for? I've scooped up all the keys, and I'm placing them beside the computer. I hear another door open, and then there's a slam. I realize the kid isn't crying anymore. Maybe he's just afraid of the dark, or maybe his dad is some kind of deranged, abusive lunatic. No, he didn't have that look to him, as if I would know. I hear the echo of a yell from the hallway upstairs. There are people on the second floor, some woman and a gay couple. I keep waiting for someone to step into the lobby from around the corner. I heard two doors open, and clearly only one of them shut. They sounded like they were on different ends of the hallway, too, but I can't be sure. We wouldn't be expected to go check on the generator, would we? The basement isn't as creepy as you'd expect. It's more like an underground storage closet full of spare pillows, sheets, and toilet paper. I've been smuggling away supplies from my apartment since I started working here. There's a ding from the elevator, and before it opens, I catch a glimpse of both Steph and my reflection, and I turn, half expecting to find the night manager has somehow crept up behind us. Instead, Steph's raising her eyebrows at me before turning her attention to the customer leaving the elevator. I could have sworn there was somebody moving behind us. Emerging from the elevator is a partially dressed man wearing a sports jacket with no undershirt and shoes without socks. His face is red and sweaty, and his hair is standing straight up like it was gelled at one point tonight before meeting with the wind in a convertible. His fly is also down, and I don't remember him checking in. I do remember checking in the gay couple, who both looked like they were Cambodian. Hey, guys, uh, somebody's upstairs bothering my friend and I. He's talking rapidly, jerking a thumb towards the elevator. What do you mean? Is someone being loud? The two rooms upstairs are on opposite ends of the hallway. The concierges for the Shirley usually make sure that guests can't get into one another's business. No, uh, well, uh, we... We were together privately. The man seems embarrassed. Steph can't help smirking when she hears that, and it's only when she smiles that sly little smile of hers that I get what the guy's talking about. Somebody was at the door. She heard it. I didn't. He sounds almost bitter for a moment. I looked through the little peephole, and someone was there. But the thing was too dirty, and whoever it was looked real blurry because of whatever's going on with your lights. He points to the ceiling. Ah, yes, sir. We're sorry about that. It's something to do with the neighborhood power lines. Fuck it. I decide to offer him a refund, but he just shakes his head. Oh, it's not my room. It's, uh, Mariah's. Steph and I exchange glances, and she's immediately looking through the computer. She'll get that if she wants, I guess. Just, whoever's bothering us, look, she just sent me to deal with it. Stop whoever's been a peeping Tom, okay? It wasn't you guys, right? He looks at both Steph and me, and then he shrugs like he really doesn't care before heading back to the elevator. Says there's a Sarah Greendale checked in upstairs. Steph looks to me just as the elevator doors close and we both mutter at the same time, hookers.
the guy, the John we just saw, was probably let in through the back entrance. I try to remember if Mariah was attractive at all. No recollection. It's kind of creepy. Steph scoots her chair back from the computer and gives me a look I've never seen before. It looks like she's both disgusted and trying to figure something out. The couple upstairs are both out. Really? Well, yeah, I waved to them, and we both said, have a good evening. And it was kind of annoying, because they know I'm stuck here with you. Ouch! I pretended to be insulted. She didn't actually mean that, right? Now that she says it, I do kind of remember the gay couple leaving. So who's upstairs? I ask the kind of question I don't need to. For all we know, the tramp who should have been given us a cut of her profits for running a brothel has a client that didn't leave the building because he's jealous and crazy. That sounds like a fucked horror movie. I make sure I've got my cell phone in my hands. <laughs> Shit, like calling 911 means anything? I have the briefest fantasy of scooping Steph under my arms and running for my beat-up Ford while some kind of knife-wielding maniac chases us. But that would be just tragic. And awful. Nowhere near a good news story. One of the doors on the first floor opens again, and this time we hear a voice. Anthony! The father is yelling, and then there's a pounding fist on a door. For Christ's sake, I'm muttering, exchanging glances with Steph, and then heading to check out what kind of bullshit a family of four can get up to. When I round the bend of the hallway, I see the dad, who's shirtless and shoeless and only in jeans, pounding his fist against the door opposite from the room I checked them into. Anthony! He's weeping, and I hear the voices of his wife and kids. Kid? In the other room. Hey, what's... I've got my hands cautiously out in front of me. For all I know, I'm dealing with a family of drug addicts. Hell, even the kids could be all hopped up on pills or meth. He's in there! It's got him! The key! You have the key! The dad's stuttering, and it's simple. He's told me everything I need to do, but I can only stand there and look into his bright red eyes. There's drool hanging from his lips, and the fear. I don't think fear could be any more visible than the way it shakes his skin with such a frenzy that, for a moment, I think his flesh is going to peel off his bones. 108. 108! I turn and yell, my voice cracking into a pathetic scream as I run to the front desk. Steph is only just fumbling with the mess of keys I've left on the desk, and then she's holding it up, squinting at it in the half-light of the room. There's more flickering, and the lights across the lobby are spotty, flicking out then turning on again, one after another. It's almost as if someone's pointing a magnetized, electrifying wand at them. This whole building is so fucked. I'm plucking the keys from Steph and sprinting, half-tripping towards the dad who has gone from screaming and smacking the door to room 108 to just leaning his head against it in defeat as bitter tears rush down his cheeks. It's okay. Here, I've got it. I don't want to touch him, so I reach between his stomach and the keyhole, slide and twist, then the door springs open and there's light from within. The lamp by the bed is on the floor and the shade is missing. The green paint is peeled off the walls, and everywhere there's a crimson rust forming strange half-circles that rise to the ceiling. There are what almost look like letters scrawled around dozens of half-circles that look like something you'd find in one of those New Age incense and meditation shops. I think there's one at the Providence Place Mall. The stench in the room is so strong that it breaks past my clogged nostrils. It's sharp and pungent smoke. Beyond cigarettes... It's the odor of one of the roaring fires I used to build with my friends back home in Vermont, except that it's richer, heavier. It's like a whole forest has burned to ash. Hey, buddy, that's not cool. I'm darting around the side of the bed and checking out the bathroom, which is empty and untouched. There's only a solid frame beneath the bed. Sliding open the room's one closet reveals nothing. He's been found... The dad sobbing now, rubbing at his eyes furiously, almost violently. I hear the wife and the other kid howling from the open door to their room. I don't know what's going on here, but someone's going to have to... Danny! Hey, Danny! Hey! Steph's screaming from the lobby, and it's an excited sort of yell. I hear the ding of the elevator and the sound of shutting doors. The kid, right? The kid's in there! The father's running, 
beating me to the elevator where Steph's standing with her hands over her mouth. He was smiling. Steph's confused. Her mouth hangs open, and it's not her best face. The flashing button on the elevator says it's heading into the basement. The dad wastes no time jabbing his finger on the down button. We can get out of here, the dad's mumbling, shivering. We can get this place, get out, get out of this whole place, this whole entire place. Then he's slapping his head like a deranged tweaker, and Steph's reaching out to put a hand on his shoulder, but I wave my hand at her. Something fucked is going on. The kid must have gone up the stairs near the side entrance and ridden the elevator down. How did he get into room 108, though? Could it be a coincidence that the place is trashed? No. Steph said the family smelled like smoke. Where's the fire? Is it following them? The ding of the arriving elevator is too friendly, too pleasant for a night that seems to have dropped thirty degrees colder and crazier. No, stay with them. The dad's snarling at me, pointing to the hallway and the room where his family is. Okay, I'll go. I'll go stay with them. I'm almost whispering before Steph follows the dad through those fortress-like metal doors. The single overhead elevator light seems to brighten, becoming blinding to the point where Steph and I are both staring right at it as the dad looks down. It's a near-white flash, and there's some sort of jellyfish made up of light, like one of those aurora lights you see way up north. The thing is reaching down from the blinding light. It's vaguely forming an arm and reaching for the dad's head as he starts screaming. His neck jerks upright as he looks to the elevator ceiling and the squirming thing beckoning from the light. Smoke begins spiraling up from the man's head as his hair begins to incinerate. I'm reaching, yelling for Steph, trying to pull her out of there. The elevator door slams shut like a hungry mouth and my right arm is caught, squished and bending. I'm squirming, pulling myself back as there's the metallic groan of the elevator dropping and it's going to, it's going to slice my arm and rip it off. I'm flying, hauling myself backwards and my arm is gone. Well, it feels like my arm is gone. It's mangled, dislocated. There was a pop. I can't stop the tears from pouring out all over my face as I cradle my useless appendage. There's a low rumble from the basement beneath me. Please! Hey, please help! Help! Voices echoing from the mom and her son in their room, and something about people, something about what I just saw, draws me to them like a moth to its fiery doom. I'm stumbling, holding my messed up arm as I round the corner. The mom is in her room, banging on a closed bathroom door. He's in there! He's in there! She's crying, ramming her shoulder into the door. Not again. Not door number two. Mom doesn't need me. She's breaking the door open, and then she's falling back, slipping on the pool of red spreading over the tiles. I don't get too good a look, partially because I immediately turn my head. What's inside that bathroom? poor woman, that poor family. The light bulb was blown out. From the illumination of the bedroom, I can see glass from the mirror, great big slashing shards of glass scattered over a crumpled up tiny person. There's dim writing all over the shadowy walls. I catch the clear and legible word not, which is repeated enough times to paint what I can see of the tan walls red, and I, I'm on my knees, on the carpet. The mother's scream is a siren that doesn't end. She doesn't need to breathe anymore. She's a screaming wraith going on and on higher and higher in pitch. I have to almost drag myself single-handed across the carpet after that. I hear more yelling, more screaming upstairs. What is that? What is that? What? What? There's a gunshot from above us on the second floor that somehow shocks the mother into quieting. There's a dead kid in that room. Banging, shouting from upstairs, the scream of a woman and a man merge into one, and then there's only a howl that turns into a crackling chuckle of triumph. I'm ripping my phone out of my pocket with my left hand, and the pain hasn't left my shoulder, my wrist. I don't have time to think, to correlate what the hell I'm seeing. My phone is on, and I see that the battery is full. I raise it to my face, and it blinks off. I try to hold a power button. Why won't it turn on? It was the house, the mother is moaning. Cursed, 
It was just the house. It was just a bad house. We're out. We made it out. We thought we got away. Then she just keeps repeating we, like she's short-circuiting. Oh, Steph. Oh, that thing that came from the light that brings the shadow and the fire. I managed to get up on my feet and lurch my way towards the emergency staircase. Tyler! God, Tyler! I hear the mother screaming. There is hope. Maybe the boy isn't dead. Oh, God, what's wrong with your eyes? Tyler, honey, your eyes! I keep moving, ignoring the confusion, the insanity. The screams follow me down the darkened staircase. There's a light vibrating from beneath the crack of the steel door that leads to the basement. I'm afraid of what's making it. My eyes immediately meet the source of the glow, and what a fucking thing it is. It has squirmy arms and ropey, sinewy-looking things, like the ends of a jellyfish, all bathed in a neon glow. The father is in the middle of the room, and Steph's dragging the taller boy towards the elevator. She's bleeding from a wound along her head. I'm calling out her name, and she turns and picks up speed, heading towards me in the darkness of the staircase. I can't see you, she's shouting, and I have to come closer to the thing that has the father on his knees while it envelops his body. He's burning slowly, wavering as if meditating, as if in a trance. What the hell is that thing? Something's wrong with his eyes, Steph's by my side, and even as I grab the taller boy's other arm, I realize that he's too heavy. The thing of crackling, oozing flame is slowly easing itself off of the dad. The generator's in a side room. I saw this thing come from the light. The light! If I create the dark, maybe... No, that's stupid. Steph, I have to save Steph. Leave him! I'm grabbing her arm. No, wait, we've got him, we've... I'm hauling her with my left hand, and she's scrawny enough that I'm able to violently jerk her away from the kid. I'm dragging her by the arm, pulling her towards the staircase. I'm right. I know I am. The oozing tendrils of light are creeping closer. The stairs are growing brighter. I can feel the living, hungry heat sizzling towards the back of my neck, and Steph's dangling a couple feet behind me. Come on! I don't know how many times I yell as I slam the steel door behind me and practically drag her up the stairs. The lights flicker on once we reach the top of the hallway. It travels through the light. We spill into the lobby. Fuck everything and everyone except us. Something is wiggling from the ceiling lights as we escape into the night. I probably dislocate the poor girl's arm, but as someone who's just had that happen to them, I'd rather be alive. My keys are right where I left them, under the front seat. She's silent. She's following me now, slamming the passenger shut behind her. Moments ago, it felt like I was going to get a dumb kid out of a locked room. Now, nothing is real. Everything has decided to merge with nonsense. I saw the squirming light and what it did to that poor man. It's harder than it looks, using my left hand to reach around the steering wheel. Every light in the Shirley is on ahead of us. Every vacant, empty window is now filled with false life. I wouldn't be surprised to smell the place going up in flames if my nose weren't so clogged. <laughs> they thought it was their house that was haunted. Steph's chuckling just as I switch out of park. I turn to look at her, expecting there to be tears, expecting there to be something she'll never recover from. In a way, I'm right. As my foot presses tight against the gas, I look into her eyes. Something's wrong with them. There are two sons, hungry and unsatisfied. The inside of my car illuminates in a steady glow of white. I see the burning tentacles spiral out from her skull. I lean in and try to focus on her lips. The passion incinerates us to black shadow, one and the same. That was Nick Manzoli Lowe's A Firm Grip on the Ankle, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. 
He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology so that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communication can be directed at www.theboojum.org, and he is, of course, our associate editor here at Tales to Terrify. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever fine podcasts are found. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and associate editors, Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.